So it's Acts 14, 8 to 24. Someone I've entitled The Christian Witness in a Pagan World. You should follow along as I read. Here's what it says. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. <coughs> this man was listening to Paul, and as he spoke, uh, when he had fixed his uh, gaze on him, Paul saw that he had faith to be made well. So with a loud voice, he said, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, who was, uh, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Paul, Barnabas and uh, Paul heard it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowds, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that was in them. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts and food with gladness. Uh, even saying these things with great difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having went over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. One of the books I have in my library is The Barbarian Conversion. In it, the author Richard Fletcher traces the growth of the church in Europe and the conversion of the people from paganism to Christianity over the centuries. When you hear the word barbarian, what's the first image that comes to your mind? You think of a muscle-bound bodybuilder named Arnold Schwarzenegger who starred in a movie called Conan the Barbarian? You think of hordes of German tribesmen uh, with long hair and beards, uh, wearing animal skins and wielding battle axes? You know, the term barbarian actually originated with the Greeks and it was used and applied to a person who didn't speak the Greek language. You see, from a Greek uh, understanding, these people speaking a foreign tongue sounded like they're saying bar, 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 or as we would say today, blah, blah, blah. Well, later, the Romans used this term barbarian applied to the uncivilized tribes of Germany and Gaul and Scythia, who were uh, always a threat on their northern border. Well, the Romans used the term pagan to refer to anyone who lived outside of the city in the countryside. The term carried a somewhat negative connotation, kind of like what we would call somebody a country bumpkin today. Well, after Christianity became the state religion of Rome, the term pagan was applied to all who worshipped uh, the ancient gods of Rome or one of the local deities in a region. A number of historians place the period of the conversion of the barbarians from 380 AD to 750 AD as that time frame. But you know, there were pagans even as late as the 1600s in northern Europe, countries like Lithuania. Well, last week as we looked at uh, the Bible, we saw that Paul and Barnabas, after preaching the gospel with much success, had to flee from the city of Iconium when they found out that there were people intending to stone them. Here we find that they went on to a small town named Lystra, where after Paul had performed a miracle, the pagans first wanted to worship them, but then decided to stone them. Well, it's in this encounter with the pagans of Lystra that we want to turn our attention this morning. 
And so to help you navigate uh, through a modern pagan culture and to help you to witness better to barbarians that you're going to face, we want to pray and ask God for his help and then get into the text. So why don't we pray? Our Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this text. Open up our minds and our hearts so that we understand the times that we live in, even as Paul did his time, that we might be a better witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what do we see in this section? Four things. First of all, we find a wonderful miracle, a wonderful miracle, and that's going to be in verses 8 to 10. Secondly, an appalling response. That's in 11 to 13. Third, an impassioned plea. That's in 14 to 18. And finally, a fickle crowd. And that's 19 to 20. Now, to speak of a wonderful miracle is somewhat redundant. I mean, aren't all miracles, by definition, wonders and therefore wonderful? I mean, if you were to look back at verse 3 of this chapter, you'll see that when Paul and Barnabas were in Iconium, it says that they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord and uh, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see, God had empowered his apostles to do miracles as an authentication of the message that they gave. Paul later on told the Corinthians that signs and wonders and miracles were a mark of true apostles. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Well, when I speak of a wonderful miracle here, though, I'm speaking of it being wonderful for the man who received it. Look again what it says in verse 8. It says this, At Lystra, a man who was sitting, was sitting, who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. I don't know if you've ever known people who are unable to walk who are lame. I've known a couple over my years. There was one who was in my high school when I was growing up. He was in my older brother's grade. His name was Dale. And as a kid, someone ran over his, I believe it was his dad, ran over his leg with a tractor. And from that point on, it, it grew kind of inward and upward. And so he always wanted to be in sports, but he couldn't run. He could just barely walk. So the one sport he settled on was wrestling because that was one he didn't need his legs quite as much. Well, when I was in college, I had a classmate who lost the use of his legs because of a car accident. He used to say that he had been running from God, and so God took his legs away so that he couldn't run anymore. Well, this man's condition here was congenital. He was born with defective feet, so while most kids were learning to walk at nine months to a year, he still had to be carried by his mother. He never got better, and therefore, he never walked. Well, his feet may not have been working correctly, but his ears were fine. And that was far more valuable at this time because we read this in verse 9. For this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. Now Paul was presumably preaching the gospel message to him. The idea that God had sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to live a perfect life and then to offer up that life as a sacrifice for sins so that on the cross God punished him instead of the sinner who deserved it and those who by faith trust in that message and trust in Jesus are forgiven of all their sins. Well, Paul could see that this guy had faith, though we don't really know how he could see that. It must have been revealed. I mean, it's not like you can look at someone and tell whether they're believing or not. I mean, as a pastor, sometimes I'm looking out at people and they're barely awake. Other times you're looking at them and you're thinking, are they anything registering with them? Now they're thinking about things outside of that. But for whatever reason, God was able to reveal this to Paul, that this man actually had faith to believe the message. Not only did he have his soul healed that day, though, God intended to heal his body as well. And so Paul tells him, he says, stand up on your feet. By the way, isn't that similar to what happened with Peter and John that we saw back in chapter 4? 
Remember they were going into the temple and there was a, a lame man there who was begging alms from them? And Peter looked down on him and said, Look at us. He said, Silver and gold, I have none. But that which I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It says the man got up and he went walking and leaping and praising God. You ever seen those faith healers on TV, so-called faith healers? Sometimes they'll bring somebody up who's in a wheelchair or walking with a walker. They command them to get up and walk. And I've noticed that all the ones that I've ever seen, they always have a couple people standing right next to them as they take one, two, three steps and almost collapse. And they say, oh, praise God, he's been healed. Well, that's not what happened here. We're told here that this man leaped up and began to walk. By the way, I saw another one just recently. Faith healer. He's from Nigeria. And he had the power to turn diesel into pineapple juice. Yeah, and then drink it. I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this, hold it. Diesel costs more than pineapple juice when I go the other direction. So a lot of those things are just hokum, uh, that gullible people believe. But these were actual events that happened that were verified. Well, this guy had been juiced up with the Holy Spirit's power because after Paul told him to stand up, he leaped and started to walk. Wow, what a display of God's mercy and power and grace. I mean, think about how this man's life would have changed from this day forward before everyone else looked down on him literally. Now he would look at them eye to eye. Now he would stand tall and proud, not of what he had done, but of what Jesus had done in saving him body and soul. Isn't God good? That brings us to our second point, though, the appalling response. Hey, there's a party going on right here. A celebration to last throughout the years. So bring your good times and your laughter, too. We're going to celebrate your party with you. Come on now. Celebration. Let's all celebrate and have a good time. Celebration. We're going to celebrate and have a good time. Cool in the game, huh? Well, this was the time of celebration. God had healed a man who was lame from birth. So strike up the band, bring out the cake. Let's praise God for his grace and his mercy. And oh, look, the townsfolk are coming out right now. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian voice, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they were calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. Now, I call this an appalling response because we'll see in a moment that Paul and Barnabas were appalled. They were aghast. They were apoplectic when they understood what these rustic barbarians were intending to do. Now, this was an appalling response to a monotheistic Jew who knew there was only one God. But it was a perfectly reasonable response to pagan polytheist idol worshippers. You know, the, common, uh, the commentators point out that the Roman poet Ovid relates a legend related to the city of Lystra. The story goes that the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes once visited the city of Lystra, but no one would give them any lodging or hospitality except for one old couple, a man named Philemon and his wife Bacchus. Because of the inhospitality uh, of the townspeople, Zeus sent a flood to destroy the city, but he spared the old couple and turned their uh, simple house into a temple palace. Well, these present-day inhabitants of Lystra weren't going to make that mistake again. They said, Zeus and Hermes have come back. Now we need to honor them properly. Now, two problems in their response. First of all, they're interpreting the work of God through their mistaken, false worldview. And secondly, they're thinking are thanking the wrong person 
for the miracle that just occurred. What's a worldview? Well, a worldview is a system of interlocking beliefs that functions as the lens through which we see and interpret the world. Your worldview answers questions like, who are we? How did we get here? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? What's right and what's wrong and how do we know? Where's history going? And what happens to me after death? Now everybody has a worldview. Some of the worldviews are well thought out and systematized, like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, or Marxism. But for others, it's just a hodgepodge of contradictory ideas and beliefs. But one way or another, we all have that grid by which we interpret the world that allows some things to come in as true and hold other things out as false. We always interpret what happens through the lens of our worldview. You ever heard of the cargo cult? It was a quasi-religious movement that began among the Melanesian Islanders during World War II. During that time, Americans, uh, the um, Air Force, uh, Army built runways on many of the islands. And the primitive islanders, when they saw these giant metal birds in the plains land and all the goods come out of their belly, concluded that some god had sent them. And so in New Hebrides, the local natives concluded that a soldier named John Frum was actually the king of America, and it was prophesied that someday in the future he would return with these great birds to bring untold riches of food and clothes. You know, in 1968, one of these cargo cult groups offered to buy President Lyndon Johnson for $75,000. They were planning on making him king if he would tell him the secret of the cargo. Now, do you catch the parallel I'm drawing here? Just as the Melanesian Islanders interpreted the arrival of the American Plains through their primitive worldview lens, so also the town folk of Lystra interpreted the miracle of healing through the lens of a pagan worldview. And folks, listen carefully, it's the same today. Have you noticed that those who embrace cultural Marxist views on social justice interpret everything through that lens? The basic idea is that all of life is about power dynamics. And the whole world can be divided between oppressed and oppressor, the privileged and the disadvantaged. Black people are the oppressed. White people are the oppressors. That's why they can call you a racist even when you haven't said or done anything that is racist. Just the fact that you have white skin makes you guilty. Of course, this is why we teach you the Bible in a systematic way. We want you to have a Christian worldview drawn from and shaped by the Scripture. Psalm 139, or 36, verse 9 says this, In your light, we see light. In other words, through the light of God's word, we see things the way they are. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's through the lens of God's word that we're able to clearly see the truth and accurately interpret the events of our life. The second big problem for them was that when they saw the grace and mercy of God on display, they attributed the benefits to their false gods rather than the true one. Some of you are old enough to remember when there was that famine in Ethiopia that took place in the 1980s. Americans sent tons and tons of wheat for the starving people of that country. Now, because Ethiopia was at the time allied with the Soviet Union, their government took the bags of grain that had been sent from America and stamped hammers and sickles, the symbol of the Soviet Union, on the side so that the people would think that all the grain was actually coming from the Russians rather than the Americans. Well, that's what was happening here. They were putting a stamp of their pagan gods on the good benefits that were given by the true God. 
So you could apply Paul's words found in Romans chapter 1 to the people of Lystra at this time when Paul performed this miracle. It says that they did not honor God as God nor give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, because these barbarians were speaking the Lyconian language rather than Greek, Paul and Barnabas didn't immediately realize what was going on, but the moment they did, they were appalled, which led Paul to make, and this is our next point, an impassioned plea. This is 14 to 18. This is but when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowds and said, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you, and we preach a gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Now, if you've been following through the last number of weeks as we've been going through the book of Acts, you'll see that when the apostles preached the gospel, they always started with the Old Testament prophecies, which protected Jesus. Of course, that made sense because they were addressing an audience, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, who had knowledge of and a background in the Scripture. But here Paul's speaking to raw pagans, ignorant of the special revelation given through the Bible. So instead, he approaches them through natural revelation, speaking of the fact that there are not many gods, but one who's the creator of all things and the sustainer of the world. Now think about it. If you were to go to a remote jungle in Amazonia, the rainforest, you come across some tribesmen there. Would they have ever heard of Adam and Eve? Moses? Jesus? No. But you can be certain of this. He knows the true God exists. And that tribesman knows that he's offended that God. In Romans 1, 18 to 20, it says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. A building is proof that there's a builder. A painting is the handiwork of an artist. The creation is evidence that there's a creator. And it's not just that we should be able to connect the dots from a creation to a creator. But the Bible makes it clear that God makes it clear to us so that we do connect the dots. It says that it's evident to us because it's evident within us. Every single person without exception knows that God exists. There are no atheists. That knowledge and awareness of God's existence was already downloaded into our mental hardware when we were born. We possess a God awareness But Paul says that fallen man tries to suppress that knowledge because we want to avoid moral accountability. To put in the words of John, in John 3, 19-20, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. They do not come to the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Back to Romans chapter 1, where I just quoted from, starting in verse 21, it says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor God as God, nor give Him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling things. You see, you and I were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But rather than worship the true God, man substitutes false ones like Zeus and Hermes with the hope that we can fill that God-sized hole in our hearts 
and yet somehow escape his moral demands on our lives. I mean, think about the Greek gods, the Roman gods. Weren't many of them just the personification of human lust? Bacchus was the god of wine, justified you getting drunk. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. Mars was the god of war. And by the way, isn't that what people do today? They conjure up in their own minds a god who will allow them to engage in their own sinful lifestyles. Think about supposedly Christian churches that fly rainbow flags showing their support for all manners of sexual perversion. What about the fascination with astrology? Why do people like that? Well, it's because it gives you the idea that there's something in charge, something controlling your destiny, but it's not a God who holds you accountable for the way you live. The revival of nature worship and paganism. We see all that. And these things have an implications and an effect on those who believe. I remember seeing a program on Channel 2. It was about uh, the industrialization of China and how so many people had moved from the countryside to the cities. And they zeroed in on one family in particular. It was a mom and a dad. The dad went off to work in the big city, and a little bit later, the mom joined. But they had to leave the two kids back with grandma and grandpa. Well, the problem was grandpa died, and grandma was struggling to take care of the kids by herself in her old age. And they had one scene where the mom and dad come back to the house of the grandma, and it's very tense. You can sense that between the children and the parents. The mom, she's racked by guilt because she hasn't seen her kids for over a year. The dad's trying to discipline the young boy who has had none of it. And in one scene, the older girl, who's about 11 at the time, she runs off after yelling at her mom, and they show her she goes into a small kind of temple area, and she takes um, wands, which are the equivalent of the dollar of the Chinese, and she wraps them together, and then she lights them on fire, and she prays before this altar, and she prays to her grandpa. Oh, grandpa, why did you die? Grandpa, I need you to come back. And I was thinking to myself, she doesn't need a dead grandpa. She needs a living Savior. And burning dollars is not going to bring her any good. What she needs is grace from the living God. So what Paul and Barnabas were saying is, no, we're not Zeus and Hermes. We're messengers of the Creator God whose knowledge and existence you're trying to suppress and pervert by this idolatry. So Paul goes on to point this out. He says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. Yet he did not leave them without a witness, and that he gave them rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I mean, even as the nations wandered away from God, he still provided common grace, blessings to them. People who've never thanked God for a single meal have nevertheless enjoyed many satisfying steak dinners, lobster, blueberry muffins, and delicious Swiss chocolate. They've experienced the majesty of the Grand Canyon, the peace of sitting at a beach, the joy of playing with grandchildren, and the satisfaction of watching your dog wag at its tail when you come home after work. These and 10,000 other common grace presents received from God, but never a note of thanks, go back to him because they do not honor God as God, nor give him thanks. Well, this is the moral blindness that Paul and Barnabas were trying to heal in the heart's of these pagans from Lystra. And that's why he pled with them to turn from these vain things and their empty worldview. But it says, even saying these things, they barely restrain the crowds from offering them sacrifice. And I have to say, there's probably some mega church pastors today who would be well pleased to accept worship like it was offered to them. But Paul knew and felt what the psalmist wrote. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. 
That brings us to our last thing we see in the text. A fickle crowd. A fickle crowd. By the way, the Oxford Language Dictionary defines fickle as changing frequently, especially in regard to one's loyalties, interests, and affections. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says that to be fickle is to be marked by a lack of steadfastness, constancy, and stability, to be given to erratic changeableness. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. Man and his wife are sitting at the kitchen table. She asks him, do you love me? He says, of course I love you. You never tell me that. Well, 40 years ago when I married you, I told you I love you. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. You know, when a young man is fickle, we say that he's temperamental. But when a young woman is fickle, we say she's flighty. And you would think that the one thing that the people would be most stable on are their religious convictions. But in our modern Western culture, some people swap out their religious beliefs as readily as they do their cell phone providers. You know, as a child, the actor Tom Hanks, do you know he lived in 10 different houses by the time he was 10 years of age? And yet his religious beliefs were nearly as unstable. He was first raised in a Catholic church and then converted to Mormonism. In his teens, he said he became a Bible-believing uh, evangelical. Last I heard, he considers himself Greek Orthodox, but he supports LGBTQ rights. Well, here in Lystra, the people were not wavering between many views, just two, going from one dramatic shift to another on their opinion of Paul. Look at what it says in verse 19. But the Jews, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, we're always warned about believing in conspiracy theories, but this time the conspiracy wasn't a theory, it was a fact. Jews from Antioch conspired with Jews from Iconium to form a posse to hunt down the apostle Paul. They whipped up the crowds in Lystra and convinced them that rather than being a god who should be worshipped, Paul was a troublemaker who deserved to be stoned. Remember in the beginning of COVID crisis, when the doctors and nurses who were working with those patients were held up as heroes, deserving our highest respect and admiration? But then, the government officials demanded that these same doctors and nurses take experimental, untested vaccines. And what happened when they refused? These heroes suddenly became zeros, who were fired from their jobs and not allowed to collect Unemployment benefits. Government officials first wanted us to worship these healthcare workers, and later they wanted us to stone them. Can you imagine this scene, though? Paul stoned. His bloody body is dragged outside the city and dumped along the side of the road. As the believers are standing around this martyr's body, weeping at his death, suddenly he twitches. You see, Paul wasn't all the way dead. He was only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between being mostly dead and being all the way dead. It says, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. <laughs> this Paul, he's like the ever-ready bunny in those commercials long ago. He just kept going and going and going. And of course, if you're a Christian, that's what you need to do as well. Look, the gospel has many enemies. The forces arrayed against us are powerful and strong. They control the media, they control the government, they control the courts, they control almost everything. The battle's long. But the victory for us is guaranteed. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. 
The Christ who dwells in us is the greatest power we know. He will fight beside us, though the enemy is great. Who can stand against us? He's the captain of our fate. Then we will conquer, never fear, so let the battle rage. He has promised to be near until the end of the age. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. The Christ who dwells within us is the greatest power we know. Do you remember when they came to arrest Elisha? The king of Aram heard that Elisha was telling all of his secrets supernaturally. So he sent a big army after him with all these chariots. And Elisha's servant went to the door, opened the door, and he saw everything. And he panicked. And he said, Oh, my master, we're surrounded. And then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, let him see. His eyes went open, and he saw the hills were filled with chariots of fire of angels. They weren't outnumbered. The other side was outnumbered. Now here's what I'm telling you. It sure looks like we're in a losing battle at times, doesn't it? But you know, Jesus looked like he was in a losing battle until the day came that he came out of that tomb. And then they had to reevaluate his entire ministry. It's going to be the same for us. We can trust him. Our side wins. Paul did not see a whole lot of converts here, but one thing that's interesting, he picked up a young man named Timothy who lived in this area who became a great blessing to him later on. One way or another, we preach the gospel, we proclaim the good news, we let God worry about the results, and we know when it's all said and done, there's going to be a great harvest of souls who are saved. We just have to trust them. That's it. So let's pray. Our Father God, I do thank you for the fact that we can trust you. We thank you for a great message that we can bring to people that no matter what their sins, no matter how wicked we've been, if we would but trust in Jesus' death as the payment of our sin, for our sins, that you would forgive us and grant us eternal life as a free gift. And you do that because you're good and because you're gracious. So Father God, I pray for anyone here who hasn't done that, that they would do so even this very day. And I pray that you'd help us all to get this message out because everybody needs to hear it. For we ask now in Jesus' name, and to his praise. Amen. All right, I want you to stand with me and sing a song. 587, Jesus Shall Reign. <laughs>